Well, we are in a series uh, working through the New Testament book that's titled The Acts of the Apostles, uh, with the title Turning the World Upside Down. Uh, we're going to see when we get into the next chapter, chapter 17, uh, where that title came from. I want to just remind you as well that uh, you can see all of our messages on YouTube at LifePoint Church of Olympia. Uh, they're also archived at mylpcole.com forward slash media. And uh, this morning you can take notes on your personal device at mylpcole.com forward slash notes. Uh, with that, let's stand and read our scripture this morning. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, I wonder if if you're like me in this. I, I've I've never thought of myself as an effective evangelist. Any any of any of you would say, yeah, that that's me too. Um, okay, so a lot of you are evangelists here this morning. That that's good. Uh, you know, but but there have been many occasions uh, throughout my life when God has used me to lead others to personal faith in the Lord Jesus. It's always surprising to me when that happens. Uh, more often for me, those those occasions have been when, when I'm standing behind a pulpit or a podium or a lectern because my primary gifting is as a pastor and as a teacher. And that's that's kind of the way the Holy Spirit seems to work most often through me. And so people uh, have heard me communicate the gospel in a worship service or in a classroom setting, and, and God has used those messages by His Spirit to awaken faith in them so that, so that they have personally transferred their trust to Jesus Christ. And yet, uh, there have uh, been other times when I've just had personal conversations or a series of conversations that have also resulted in people believing in Jesus as their Savior. And uh, and again, I'm always surprised, because I'll, I'll be honest, on most of those occasions, I've, I'm surprised uh, because it's just not my sweet spot. I often feel like I'm fumbling and mumbling and failing and blowing it. And, uh, and looking back, though, I, I've realized that, that I can make the mistake of believing on those occasions where the pressure comes from is, is believing that it's, it's all on me to lead that person to faith. And um, what I really need in those moments, what I think all of us need in those moments, is to be reminded of what God says my part is, and and to get clarity about what his part is. Uh, that is, I need to understand what I can do, what I should do, uh, what my part is, but also to understand what I cannot do, what I can never do, 
and what only God can do. And that's why this message is titled, Open Heart, Renewed Mind. Open Heart, Renewed Mind. You'll understand that better as we move along. Well, what we just read together is uh, began with the word so. Verse 11 of, of Acts 16 begins with the word so. It's kind of like the word therefore. And, and so students of the Bible know that when they see the therefore, you, you need to check and find out what it's therefore, right? What's the therefore, therefore? And so what's the so about? Last week we examined verses 6 to 10 of Acts. Let me just read this for us again. They went through the region. Now this is this is Paul. This is Silas. This is Timothy, whom they picked up in Lystra. Uh, and so it says, They, those three, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Let me, let me just pause right there and say, just remind us that Asia, on this occasion, was not China, Korea, Japan, the way we think of Asia. Asia, in this case, was a province of, of the Roman Empire that was located in most of the western part of Turkey. In fact, in the ancient world, all of what we know now as Turkey was known as Asia Minor. And places like Mycenae and Bethany, or Bithynia, Mycenae was um, just a, a kind of an unincorporated territory. It was the wild frontier uh, in, in Western uh, Asia. They attempted to go into Bithynia. That's another province that was to the north of them, just just below the Black Sea. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So he's having a dream. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now behind that conclusion that they were called by God to Macedonia, that specific call, stood three other words from Jesus himself. The first is what we've come to refer to as the Great Commission that Jesus had given to his disciples, that's recorded in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That, that was Jesus to his disciples. Also, one of the final words of Jesus to his disciples, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before he ascended into heaven, was this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And again, I always, I always picture his disciples going, Okay, Jerusalem, check. Judea, yeah, we know that. Samaria, really? You know, really? 
uttermost parts of the earth, I've never been more than 40 miles from my own home, you know. What? Uttermost parts of the earth, what's that about? So it was a commission, but it was also kind of a prediction, wasn't it? That Jesus was saying, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be my witnesses in these places. And little did they know, you know, is that what I always think of as that uh, Dr. Seuss, oh, the places you will go, you know. Um, but nobody on this mission team that we're talking about now heard those words with their own ears. Uh, they, they had been told of them. They were aware of them. They knew that, that the church had a specific mission. But remember that Paul himself had received directly from the resurrected and glorified Jesus a personal commission to take the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to go beyond the, the Jewish world into the rest of the world. And and so this journey that Paul and company would take from Troas to Macedonia, I would I'm just referring to this morning as a journey of obedience. It was a journey of obedience. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And I mentioned last week that sometimes we hear these words, we don't know where they are and what, what it's all about. May as well be Middle Earth, right? And so um, let's take a look at the map. There's Troas on the east coast of the Aegean. That's where they set sail from. They went up to Neapolis. Uh, they they hung out at Samothrace or Samothraki for one night, and then and then on to Neapolis. Not the best map, but but it's somewhat helpful for our purposes today. So notice that they set out from Troas on the east, sailing to the northwest. And by the way, I, one of the commentators I read as I was preparing for this message mentioned that um, Troas faced toward Macedonia. It faced toward Macedonia. To face toward Macedonia as you're standing in the port of Troas looking across the sea, even though you couldn't see it <clears throat> because it was too far away, but, but Macedonia was on the other part, other side of that body of water. And, and I was reminded of a kind of our journey as a church. Um, most of you know we spent 11 years over in Lacey. I've spent about nine months at what is now Aspire Middle School uh, off of Ruddle Road on 54th. And and then when they remodeled that building, they kicked us out, and we landed over at Timberline High School. And we spent 11 years at Timberline High School. Um, we lost our lease over there on our office. We met at the high school, but we had offices over uh, across from Lowe's, across Yelm Highway, right behind McDonald's. Uh, it's a good thing I don't have an office right next to McDonald's anymore. Um, but we lost that lease. We'd been there for several years, and um, someone else with deeper pockets wanted that space, and so we got bumped. And we ended up over on Pacific Avenue uh, in a, an old house built in the 1930s that was leased out to businesses, and and uh, so we leased that space. And and honestly, and, and probably for the next couple of years following that, I said, God, what are you doing? 
what is this? We're a lacy church, and now here we are on Pacific Avenue. I don't really like this area. I don't really like this office. And and uh, what are you doing? And when I read this commentator that said, Troas faced towards Macedonia to to the west, it struck me what, that I'd had the same thought about that office on Pacific Avenue after we arrived here. Because I didn't know what God was doing with us. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't understand the journey he had us on. But this happened, this building, this campus. And, and I realized one day, um, a couple years ago, actually, that, that office on Pacific Avenue faced this direction. And, 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 and maybe God was, was leading us in a way that I, I couldn't imagine. And he has the right to do that, doesn't he? he? He's the Lord of the church. And he has the right to send us uh, where he wants to send us. <clears throat> so from Troas, they traveled to the northwest. The voyage took about two days. Their first destination was that rocky island of Samothrace or Samothraki. I understand that uh, it's it's a big rock <laughs> that, that rises to 5,000 feet above sea level. It's one of the most visible features in the, the landscape uh, in that area. You can see it from all over. Um, the, the Romans called it Poseidon's Island because they believed that the, the god of the sea, Poseidon, uh, resided there and uh, watched over the sea from there. But it was a, uh, it was a, a destination for most of the, um, mariners in that region. Because they didn't want to sail by night because of their fear, um, not only of the weather, but of, um, their gods, uh, and demons and so many other things. So it became a, a stopover and so, same thing happened with the missionary team. The captain of their ship anchored there at Samothrace uh, overnight and then proceeded on the next day and landed at Neapolis or New City. Neapolis served as the seaport for the, for the commercial center at Philippi. And, and if you're familiar with the area, if you've been over there, Neapolis is the modern port city of Kavala, um, they must have enjoyed a favorable wind to complete that 150-mile journey in two days since it took them five on their return trip. If you read Acts 20, verse 6, Luke says that that same voyage coming the other direction took them five days. And, and notice the authenticity lent to the story by, by the fact that the narrator, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, was on board that ship, and, and he gives us a port-by-port description of that voyage. And then from Neapolis, the team journeyed inland, presumably on the Roman road that was known as the Via Ignatia. Um, and that, that journey was only about 10 miles to the city of Philippi. That Roman road, Via Ignatia, is, still exists. You can still see parts of it uh, if you visit that area. So verse 12 says, and from there, that is Neapolis to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. They actually were there quite a while. 
Well, we can we can kind of read quickly past that, or we can stop and figure out what it was that Luke was trying to help us understand. Philippi was was given its name by Philip of Macedon, who happened to be the father of Alexander the Great. In the 4th century BC, Luke describes Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia. There's probably some clarification required here for for the history wonks in the room. Paul, Paul is not saying that Macedonia itself was a district. It was not. Macedonia was a Roman province at the time. Uh, it's now northern Greece. At the time, the capital city of Macedonia uh, was, of, of the province of Macedonia was Thessalonica, which uh, Paul and company will get to very soon. But the province was divided into four districts or jurisdictions, and the word translated leading here is the Greek word protos, which means first or most important. So it would seem that Luke wants us to understand that Philippi was a very important, prominent city in its jurisdiction, in its district. Philippi was also a Roman colony, he tells us. And, and what did that mean? Well, we might think of Roman colony as a little Rome away from home. A little Rome away from home. The Roman emperors established colonies as, as centers of Roman culture in areas they had conquered. It was kind of a way of exporting the culture of Rome into these other territories. The architecture in Philippi was distinctly Roman. The ruins there are some of the best preserved uh, in the uh, from the ancient world. Um, the residents there would have dressed in Roman garb. Uh, the constitution of the city of Philippi was patterned after this, uh, that of the city of Rome. Uh, the city was governed by magistrates that were hand-picked and sent from Rome. So they were, in a sense, not just judges, not just rulers, but they were ambassadors of Rome. And the government of Philippi was not made subject to the provincial administration or even the the, the district administration. Instead, the the uh, the government of Philippi was responsible directly and only to the emperor in Rome. They were kind of an island of Rome unto themselves. But the city was not only Roman culturally and politically or governmentally. A, a Roman colony was a center of Roman power. It was, uh, it, it was a place where the power of Rome was kind of displayed, the strength, the might of Rome. There would have been a large active duty military presence garrisoned there. Uh, a Roman colony was also a retirement community for veterans, of the Roman army. They were given homes in the colony as an expression of gratitude for their service and sacrifice, kind of part of the, the the Roman army retirement plan, I guess. But adding to its importance, Philippi occupied a strategic location commercially. It had its own seaport at Neapolis. It straddled this Via Ignatia. That trade route stretched for hundreds of miles, both to the east and the west. There were active gold mines near Philippi and and the city housed a famous school of medicine that had graduates all over the known world. Well, why is all of that important to know for us today as we're studying this passage? Several weeks ago, I shared with you two elements or pillars of Paul's missionary strategy. Does anybody 
Remember the first one. City. City City-based. Wherever Paul went, he, he went first to the cities. And you rarely see Paul ever in the rural areas. He always went to the the commercial and cultural centers. He, he seemed to understand that, that strategic significance of cities for the advance of the gospel. Um, why? Because he knew that the, the gospel message would travel out from there into the countryside. It's always the cities that affect the countryside. It's always the urban areas that, that um, affect the culture even of the rural areas. And so... Paul wanted to go with the gospel to the centers of cultural influence. Well, here's another question that relates to all of this. Did the man in Paul's vision say to him, come over to Philippi and help us? Or did he say, come over to Macedonia and help us? Which was it? Macedonia, right? Survey says Macedonia. Paul Paul could have gone to any city in Macedonia he chose, right? There wasn't any specificity uh, to the call. Um, but when we when we come to understand something of the strategic significance of Philippi, it, it begins to make complete sense that Paul chose to go there first. And uh, he had a very, very fruitful ministry there in Philippi. In fact, you get the sense as you read Paul's letter to Philippi later, known as Philippians, um, that, that he really loved that church. He loved the people in that church. Well, who remembers the second pillar then of Paul's missionary strategy? What was it? Synagogues. Synagogues. City-based synagogues first. Every, every time uh, Paul went into a new city, he went first to the synagogue, and, that, and that's how Paul and company found their way to a place of prayer outside the gates by the riverside near Philippi. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, now why would Paul have supposed that he would have found a place of prayer outside the gate by a riverside. Um, there are at least two possible explanations. The first one is that in A.D. 49, uh, probably just a year or so uh, prior to the arrival of Paul and his party in Philippi, the Roman Empire had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And Jews are always have always been kicked around, haven't they? They, they expelled all of the Jews from Rome. One, one of the consequences of that action was that while the Roman Empire allowed Jews to live in a Roman colony like Philippi, they they would not allow them to worship in the city. And so the Jews would have to go outside the gates of the city to engage in worship. Whether Paul knew that coming in or not, we don't know. Um, But he didn't find a synagogue in the city. Second, when the Jews constructed a synagogue, if, if it was possible, they would choose a site as close as possible to water as they could get. And again, not stagnant water, not, not a pond, not a swamp, but, but flowing water, what the Jews referred to as living 
water because of the water needed for the, the ritual cleansings that were part of Jewish worship. And what stands out on this occasion is first that they found no synagogue in Philippi. Secondly, what they, that what they found at the riverside was not a synagogue, but a place of prayer. No building there, specifically a group of women meeting together. Interesting. Was this the, uh, the just the women's ministry from the Philippi synagogue that was somewhere else? No. This was it. Uh, why were there no men gathered with them? Most biblical scholars believe the reason would have been that, that in Philippi, the Jewish population was so small, so sparse, that, that again, as we saw in Lystra and Derby, there were not enough men to establish a synagogue. So here are the women. And women, you've always made up the backbone of every synagogue and every church, right? It's true. So on that first Sabbath day in Philippi, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke sat down by the riverside and spoke to these women. And it was Jewish practice that if a visiting rabbi was present in the synagogue, and we saw this when they visited Pisidian Antioch, he would be recognized and he would be invited to speak. And that's probably what happened here. Paul is recognized, maybe because of the way he was dressed, recognized as a rabbi, and invited to share a word. And that's where he met the lady Lydia, or the lady of Lydia. One one who heard us, it says in the beginning of verse 14, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I mean, it really seems, does it not, that, that Luke's, Luke wants us to know who this woman is. He goes in a great deal of detail about her and about her life. Um, first thing he says is she was one who heard us, but He's already told us that there are others who heard them as well. There must be something special about this one. And he introduces her by sharing four fun facts to know and share. Uh, her first, her name is Lydia. She, two, she's from the city of Thyatira. Where was Thyatira? Let's go back to the map. There it is, right in the middle of the map. So they're up in Philippi. She's from Thyatira. And uh, she's she's a ways from home. She's a ways from home. Thyatira was clear on the other side of the Aegean Sea in the heart of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, and 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 here's here's an interesting thing. Thyatira was in a region that had previously been known as the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And, and so it's possible that. Number one, her parents had intentionally named her after that kingdom. Or number two, that Lydia was not so much her personal name as it was her trade name. So uh, she may, in fact, have been known as the Lydian lady or the, the lady of Lydia. Uh, I suppose she's a businesswoman. You know, maybe, maybe her vans, as they're driving down the the streets of the city of Philippi said, Lady of Lydia, purple goods. You know, the, that that's very possible. Next, Luke does tell us that she was a seller of purple goods. So so she's a businesswoman who had settled in Philippi. 
Now, Lydia was a, what we call her a modern woman. Uh, she was unique, I think, for her age, uh, the age in which she lived, not her age in years, but in the age in which she lived. Uh, she may have, may have had a family of her own. It's possible that some of the women who were with her down there by the riverside at the place of prayer were her own employees or her servants. Uh, but Thyatira was a center for what we would uh, call today um, the fabrics and textiles industry. It was famous for its centuries-old industry of, of dyeing fabrics, um, they, they manufactured linens there and wools. There was a, a trade in even leather clothing that came out of Thyatira. Um, but in particular, it was a center for the very lucrative trade in purple cloth. The color purple was uh, denoted royalty. It indicated wealth. Those who served in the highest levels of, of the Roman political establishment were were also known to wear purple. And, and so get this, the, the rich, the famous, the powerful were all Lydia's customers. Uh, she may have owned her own business or she may have been the, the Philippian agent for a manufacturer back home in Thyatira. Um, but Lydia was most likely a very wealthy woman. The fourth fact that Luke shares with us by way of introduction to Lydia is that she was a worshiper of God. The other term that's used in the New Testament for people like Lydia is God-fearer. God-fearer, like Cornelius, the Roman centurion, whom we met back in chapter 10. Lydia was not a Jew. She was a Gentile who, who understood and acknowledged Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one true and living God. She she believed and worshipped as a Jew without actually becoming fully a Jew. So Lydia is a worshipper of God. She's a God-fearing Gentile. And on this particular Sabbath, she's down at the riverside with other women for prayer when this Jewish rabbi named Paul arrives with his friends and is given the opportunity to teach. Luke doesn't tell us what Paul said that day. Now, something we've already begun to see in our study of Acts is that when Paul was talking with Jews and God-fearers, he always began with the Old Testament scriptures. Always. Why? Because they knew the scriptures. And so they just hadn't connected the dots and understood that the Messiah, about whom they had read their entire lives and whom they were waiting for was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth. And in that sense, they were, might be called low-hanging fruit. Uh, There by the riverside in Philippi, Paul may have then given a message like the one he gave in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13. Uh, And back there, on that day, he began with Abraham, uh, clear back the the patriarchs, and, and then he moved forward to Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. He, he jumped forward then to the time of the judges and, and forward again to King David. And from there, he reminded them of the message of John the Baptist. And he, he, he focused in on the one to whom John was pointing, who was Jesus of Nazareth. He talked about how the Jews had rejected their own Messiah, how they contempt, how they had condemned him to death. He focused on the crucifixion of Jesus, but then he announced his resurrection from the dead, and the forgiveness of sins that's now available in his name. 
And as he came to his clothes there in Pisidian Antioch, he told them, Acts 13, 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And, and there in Pisidian Antioch, uh, many believed. And I think we can assume that, that Paul's message to Lydia and her friends would have followed a similar pattern. I don't think he called them brothers. I think he called them sisters. But I think he probably followed a very similar pattern. Now, notice how Luke describes Lydia's response. And this is where we're getting to the point of this message. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let's read that again. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let me state that in the reverse. If the Lord hadn't opened Lydia's heart, she would not have given what Paul had to say that day any attention at all. She just would have disregarded it. The fact that that she was responsive to what Paul had to say was entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write later to the church in Corinth that the natural person, that is the person who does not have the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, what the gift that, that God gave to Lydia that day by her spirit, by his spirit, was, was the, uh, the capacity to receive in her inner being what Paul had to say. So here's the, here's the news flash. Even the preaching and teaching of a godly man of the spiritual stature of the apostle Paul was in a, inadequate by itself to bring about the salvation of anyone. You understand that? Paul was not effective because he was a great orator. Paul was not effective because he was a great theologian. Paul was effective because through him, the Spirit of God worked in the lives of those who heard him. See, unless God, by the power of his Spirit, opens the hearts of those who hear to receive the message about Jesus... They'll never receive it. They won't pay attention. They will disregard it. And that is so important for us to understand as we're sharing our faith with others. It's all gibberish unless the Spirit translates. And that's why no one can say that they came to the Lord because of their superior intellect or because they have greater spiritual sensitivity than others. I heard that one from someone recently. Well, well, I'm just very spiritually sensitive. (laughs) I thought, are you now? Nor can we claim our own innate morality as the reason we came to Christ. It's the Lord and the Lord alone who opens our hearts to receive the message. So if you're a Christian today, thank God that he did that, that he opened your heart to receive the message of the gospel. Paul put it this way in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He said, God saved you by his grace when you believed, And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God, 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. See, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We we might say that, that he opened the eyes of her heart to see and to believe in Jesus. And then as her heart is opened, her mind is renewed to pay attention to what Paul said. And Paul would later write to the church in Rome, urging them not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by what? By the renewing of their minds. When God opens our hearts to trust in Christ, he also progressively renews our minds to understand and respond to more and more of his word. And so the title of, of this message today describes the experience of Lydia and of everyone who has ever believed in Jesus Open heart, renewed mind. Open heart, renewed mind. As we begin to wrap this up, let's take a a lesson from this passage about what conversion looks like as we see it in the life of Lydia. Again, verses 14 to 15, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, that is, if you uh, judge my conversion to be genuine and authentic, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So notice this, first of all, that conversion includes a change of mind. Conversion involves a change of mind. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, listen, that we might understand, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, if the Holy Spirit uh, does not act in us, upon us, we will never understand those things. Again, there'll be foolishness to us. And that that's what we see happening in the life of Lydia. Because her mind was renewed, she then possessed the capacity by the enablement of the Spirit to understand what God was trying to say to her on this occasion through Paul. Secondly, conversion involves a change of heart. You can say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Egg, change of mind, change of heart. I think I think it's heart. <laughs> But I think they happen simultaneously. In the Bible, the heart isn't merely the seat of our emotions, uh, as our culture almost exclusively thinks of it, right? I mean, when we think about heart, we think about emotion. But that's not it in the scriptures. <clears throat> Neither is it just an organ that pumps blood, you know, to, to our body. Rather, it's the seat, in the, in scriptures, the heart is the seat of the will. It's the control room. It, it, it's the throne room of our lives. In our hearts, there is a throne. And when God opens our hearts, he also opens the throne room of our lives and enables us to surrender the throne to him. That is in itself is a gift from God. We don't do that. We struggle enough with that as it is, right? If the Spirit doesn't give us the capacity to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to place Him on the throne of our lives, we'll never do it. Third, those changes in mind and heart, or heart and mind, enable 
what the Bible refers to as belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul said. Believing in Jesus, or Peter said, believing in Jesus isn't just an intellectual process, although it includes that uh, in the New Testament, belief is a matter of the heart. Again, it's a matter of the will, the surrender of the will. God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention. Notice that he's talking about a a heart process and he's talking about an intellectual process. He opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had to say. And that's an unusual way of saying that she believed the message about Jesus, that she put her faith in him and she received forgiveness of sin and was reconciled to God through him. Fourth, conversion involves repentance. Repentance. And repentance, by definition, begins with a change of both heart and mind. To repent means to turn around 180 degrees and go the other direction from which you were headed. I have a change of heart to believe in Jesus. I, I turn away from what I believed before. And, that, and that's, that's why at LifePoint, uh, I often use this expression, transferring our trust to Jesus. Before we heard and believed the message about Jesus, if we, if we thought that there might be, uh, life beyond death, if we might, if we thought there might be an afterlife, if we thought that there might be a place, uh, called heaven, where, where people might go when they die, that we were trusting in ourselves, we were trusting in our own morality, our own sense of personal goodness, our own charity, our own cleverness, our own sense of power to control our own lives and destinies. We may have been following other religions or, or cults or, or even other gods. But now we transfer all of that trust that we're placing in all of those other things over to one person and one accomplishment by that person, the person Jesus Christ and the, his accomplishment on the cross. And we trust in that exclusively because it is the thing, it is God's provision for the predicament of our separation from God. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. And what follows that is a changed life, a changed worldview, a changed set of values and behaviors motivated now by a desire to please the one who saved us by his grace through the blood of Christ. Conversion, biblically speaking, also involves baptism. And we read here that Lydia and her entire household were baptized. To be baptized is first to make a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ, not because my friends or my family are doing it, or any other members of my household are doing it, but because I personally have transferred my trust to Christ. Baptism is a confession of faith. It's a public act. It's a a radical public identification with Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. 
Perhaps it was Lydia who took the initiative to lead the rest of her household to faith in Jesus. Perhaps it was Paul or, or other members of the team or maybe some combination of all of them. But, but each of them personally believed in Christ as their Savior and as their Lord and gave their lives to him. And so they were baptized. There's no sense here that this was a, a group conversion. We all come to faith in Christ individually. By the way, baptism is not required for salvation. How, how do we know that? Because we know that the thief on the cross next to Jesus who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, didn't jump down from that bloody cross and get baptized and then hop back up on the cross to die. And Jesus said, by his faith, his simple faith, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So baptism is not required for salvation. It's not a work of, that, that somehow elicits God's grace. It is entirely a public identification with him. But it's also commanded. It's commanded. Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Why? Because uh, everybody knew that if you were, uh, in those days, knew that if you were converting from one religion to to the next, there was baptism involved. There was some ritual that said, I was this and now I'm this. I was that person, now I'm this person. I was serving that God, now I'm serving this God. And and so baptism was required. Today, we just kind of say, oh, that's one of those religious things that Christians do. No, it's not that. It's standing and saying before a group of witnesses, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ in my life and you can hold me accountable for this. You can expect me to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, by the way, we're having a baptismal service. The the pool will be right there. And so if you have not been baptized since you believed in Christ, I want to just say to you, you are in disobedience. And and you need to take this step because Jesus commanded it. And Jesus said, if, if you won't confess me before other people, neither will I confess you before my Father in heaven. If you, if you won't be publicly identified with me, uh, I'm not going to be identified with you. And so baptism. So, so next Sunday, if you haven't been, if you haven't been baptized since you believed in Jesus, then the next Sunday is your, your, your day of destiny. <laughs> so, Take that next steps card or email me, Pony Express me, whatever you need to do this week to let me know uh, that you're ready to be baptized. Finally, conversion results in kingdom-minded service. And we see this in Lydia's life. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, From these verses, we learn a few more things about Lydia. She owned her own home. Kind of unusual for a woman in those days. She was, she was the head of her own household, which probably indicates that she may have been a widow. Uh, her home was large enough for, for her family and her servants and her guests. Um, and God put it in her heart to provide something the mission team really needed, which was a place to stay in Philippi. And what would she receive in return? At least this. The satisfaction of knowing that she was serving God and and making a contribution to the advancement of the gospel in her city and beyond. She didn't say, hey, I've got some rooms to rent. Uh, and here's the price. She said, just, just come and stay. Um, 
not only that, but, but she and her, her entire household would enjoy fellowship with these godly men. It says that Lydia had to prevail upon them um, to, to accept her request. And I, I think that suggests that they may have resisted at first, um, but that she was persistent, that she persuaded them to accept. And notice this, generosity and hospitality are, ha- are hallmarks of the Christian life. Uh, why has God allowed you to, ha- to own a home to, or even to rent a home? Have you ever considered that, that you might leverage your home for the kingdom of God? You know, I'm so thankful for the men and women in this church who serve faithfully, many of whom serve sacrificially in the ministry of our church. Some of them serve quietly, uh, in obscurity. You, you don't know what people are doing in the background, but it, but things are being done by faithful people, uh, and who do so not because they want to be paid, not because they expect recognition, not because they want someone to affirm them, but, but they do it because by the Spirit of God, they have, they have been given a God-given desire to please Him, a God-given desire to make a difference in the lives of, of others, whether they're children or teens or uh, old folks or somewhere in between, and who are willing then to, to put their shoulders into the forward movement of the mission of the gospel so that people at LifePoint Church, people in Thurston County, people around the world might have the opportunity to know Christ. As we close, let me suggest just a few brief insights for personal evangelism. I heard someone say recently that they're terrified to share the gospel with someone else for fear of saying the wrong thing or messing it all up in in other ways. And, And I want to encourage you that you can have confidence that God can use you. When God gives you the opportunity to share the gospel with others who don't know Christ, whether it's from a platform or in a classroom or across the table in a coffee shop, there are just a few essential elements that, that each of us really needs to get comfortable with. And the first is that each of us should learn to simply articulate the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, he put it very simply this way. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins as the scriptures said he would. He was buried as the scriptures said he would be. And he rose again from the dead as the scriptures said he would. There it is. There it is. When he died, he, he died in our place. He took the full and final penalty for all of our sin, and then God raised him from the dead. When you trust in Jesus and, and his accomplishment for you on the cross, God forgives your sin and, and accepts you into his, into his family. It's just as if you had never sinned. We need to get com- comfortable with a simple articulation of the gospel. Second, you need to be ready to personally identify as a Christ follower, to to acknowledge that that you also have personally believed in Jesus, that you've transferred your trust to him, and that you know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life, not because you're good or you're smart, but because God is faithful to his promises. God is merciful and loving and gracious. Third, 
you need to invite them to make a decision for themselves. That doesn't mean you need to close the deal at that moment. It means that you extend an invitation for them to to make a decision. I worked in sales for a short time when I was a younger man, and, and one of the things I learned is that the difference between effective salesmen and ineffective salesmen is, is the ability to close the deal. <laughs> to close the deal. But you know what? God, God doesn't expect you to close the deal. He doesn't expect you to play Holy Spirit in anybody's life. Because what you need next is to learn to just trust the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. You you invite them to make a decision about Jesus and then trust God to do what he can do. Years ago, I heard this definition of personal evangelism. It's still true today. It goes like this. Evangelism is simply sharing the good news of the gospel in complete dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Simply sharing the good news of the gospel in complete dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. You see, God is the ultimate evangelist. Uh, Paul worked hard to persuade people intellectually of the truth of the gospel, but he understood that unless the Holy Spirit was working through him, uh, it, no, no hearts were opened, no minds were changed. And, th- and that's the essence of it. So it's on us. Here's our part. It's on us to be witnesses, to, to take the initiative to engage relationships uh, with boys and girls, with teens, with men and women who don't know Christ, to begin a conversation with them, to, to in the midst of that conversation or those conversations, to look for an opportunity to turn the conversation toward Jesus. And when the opportunity arises, to share as simply and clearly as we know how, and then leave the results to God. And when we, when we begin to think, well, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I, what if I don't get the theology just right? You know, what, what if I don't get the words in the right order? Paul said in another place, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And so God can take your mumbling and your bumbling and your fumbling and, and He can, by His Spirit, just transcend all of that, penetrate all of that, penetrate the heart of the hearer with the gospel. Now, leaving the results to God, this is my last thought, leaving the results to God doesn't mean that we engage in what somebody called hit-and-run evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel and then quickly and heartlessly just fleeing the scene, right? It simply means that we embrace both the responsibility to share and the freedom of knowing that it is God and God alone who can open a heart, who can renew a mind, who can transform a life. And so again, you and I don't have to play Holy Spirit. We can pray, pray, pray. That's what we're called to do. But, but we don't play Holy Spirit. We just allow God to do what only he can do. We pray that he does. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for uh, for this vignette and in the mission of your church. Thank you for the faithfulness of the mission team. We thank you for opening Lydia's heart and mind. And, and Lord, we, we don't hear much more about her other than to know that she was an influential woman and that she she believed in you and and she repented of her sin and 
and uh, she was transformed, and she became a kingdom supporter uh, in, in the mission. And, and so, Lord, thank you for her. And uh, as we think about these people, we're reminded that we're here today because they were faithful and uh, that we're experiencing uh, 2,000 years later the results of their faithfulness. Thank you that uh, you can use us today as faithful people to pass the gospel on to others so that it would uh, continue to expand until Jesus comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.